Good evening. Well, I've got a mess of notes up here. Little things written here, little things written there. So I'll go till I'm done, and if we're done early, we're done early. We won't be done late, though. This morning we looked at two of three different rich men. I knew it was coming. Two of three different rich men. Do you remember this morning we looked at um, a fool, the rich fool? Why did Jesus say that this man was a fool? Not because he was rich, but because in all that God blessed him, he completely missed the most important thing in life, namely to think about God, to have a relationship, to have any kind of plan for his future. He planned completely for his earthly financial future. And God said to him, well, what happens if I pull the plug on you tonight? Then what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your huge business? Then what happens to all these plans of yours? Period. In philosophy, you would say full stop. That's it. Because he wasn't thinking. There's no more to the story. It's what happens when you're not paying attention to the God who was there. We talked about practical atheism. Not that he was an atheist, but that he was living as if God wasn't there. And we said, don't be so dead set in pursuing career and finances and whatever goals that you have that you completely miss the God who was there. What's the purpose of life? What's the essence of life? What is eternal life? What is this all about? It's to know God, the only true God. That's, that's what life is about, to live in relationship with the God who has created you, and then to enjoy all things in relationship to him, not to pursue things and then pretend like there's no end or pretend like the end is all there is. And then we talked about another rich man. He was a young man, a ruler, probably in the synagogue. He was a religious man. We talked about how he was zealous, how he wanted God. You're going to meet a lot of people in your life who are interested in religious things. They're not messing around. They're, they're, they're interested. And he comes running to Jesus. Other people aren't running necessarily. This man runs to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, let's talk, you know, let's talk about what you think you've done. Oh, I've kept all of the laws and the commandments. You've kept, you've kept some of them. But there's one thing you lack. Go sell all your riches. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And Jesus will often come into our lives and put his finger on the very thing that's keeping us from really following him. And that young man went away sad. And the, the amazing thing in the passage is that Jesus looks at him and is very sad. And we talked about the, the amazing possibility that I could affect the emotions of God, that God could look on me with sadness, wanting to save, and I turn my back and walk away. Now, some might take issue with that sentence, but we'll leave that for another day. A rich young man. He wanted something, but he wasn't willing to give up everything for Christ. There might be something in your life where the Lord says, to really follow me, I have to be first. And you might say, I'm sorry, this is more important to me than you. That's a scary thing. Because what does the Bible say? What is it that a man can give in exchange for his soul? And what's the point? You can gain the whole world and lose your own soul. I mean, what's the point? Is anything really worth that much? Right? So tonight we'll come to our third 
rich man, our third rich man. This is Zacchaeus. Everybody knows Zacchaeus. How many of you have heard the story of Zacchaeus? Just put your hand up. I mean, I mean, somewhere along the line, even if you didn't realize it, you heard the story of Zacchaeus. If you can't remember, you were in a Sunday school class and you sang the song about Zacchaeus. You looked at some horribly illustrated children's Bible book with these cartoon figures. Um, Zacchaeus, turn to Luke chapter 18. I know if you're sharp, you know it's a 19, but turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to read the story of Zacchaeus. Luke tells us about Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, and he's coming to the end of his journey. Much of the gospel of Luke sees Jesus going towards Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to be nailed to a cross. I hope you realize the profoundness of the Bible. The claim of the Bible is that the creator of deep space, the creator of the Hubble deep space fields, the God who knows all of the nebula and the galaxies, the creator of quantum mechanics, the designer of the human brain and all of your synapses, is a God who came to this earth incarnate and walked among men and women and went to the cross and died for you. That's an amazing story. That the God of the cosmos would come and just walk among people. Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus Christ. God walking on earth, going to a cross, being nailed to it. That's an amazing thing. That's not something humans invent. Humans invent religions and us doing lots of things to make God happy and get God's attention. And maybe if we do enough stuff, God will reward us with something. The scripture says there's nothing you can do. God came and did it all. You've heard me say this before. There's two religions in the world. One spelled with four letters and one spelled with two, right? The one spelled with two letters is do. Do this, do that, do the other thing, give this, pray here, crawl there, eat this, don't eat that. And maybe someday you'll be good enough. The other spell with four letters. It's done. Christ has done the work required to satisfy God's claims against you. It's done. And we have to put our faith and trust in Christ. And you could pick tonight whether you are sort of in the do category, ignoring God's message and trying to do something for God that says you can't do enough to get this. It's too expensive. Or you can say, I rest in Christ's finished work. Done is the work that saves and you're like, all right, why don't you start reading? You had us turn to a passage. Okay, well, let's read. <laughs> Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And he took the 12 aside and said to them, they're, they're going towards Jerusalem. They've been traveling for three years here. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Well, almost three years. We're going up to Jerusalem. That means up in elevation. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. Read that line. God mocked. God spit upon. God insulted. And he doesn't vaporize the planet. It's an amazing line. He will be spit upon. They will scourge him. They will kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. And they completely didn't get it. Like, just stop and let that soak in. You, you've been raised and you've heard the Bible and you, you 
You know the story of Jesus dying on the cross, whether you believe it or not. You know that they didn't didn't get that. Like, he said this to them, and it just... They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. Underline that word and think about that. It was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. It doesn't make sense to their minds that the Messiah, which is the the superhero, so to speak, of, of Israel, the one who would save them from the Romans, right, and lead them to victory over the nations, at least that's what they thought. What are we talking about? You're going to die on a cross. The cross is for criminals and for, uh, for, for nobodies. The cross is the ultimate embarrassment. You want to shame somebody? Hang them on a cross. I mean, the nobles and the warriors, they don't, you don't put them on the cross. You know, they, they die some type of noble death. You want to shame somebody? You want to show their powerlessness? You hang them on a cross. What are you talking about? Messiah will die on a cross? Let's not have heard that right. <laughs> Whatever, Jesus. They didn't get it. Verse number 35. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho. Jericho's very, very low in elevation. That a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Seeing him there in your mind's eye. There's no, no programs for the blind in this society. He's got nothing. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asks, Hey, hey, what, what's going on? who's coming? So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. What does he do? He starts yelling. He cries out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. Stop. Shh. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Don't pass by and miss me. Sure, there's a hymn with that line. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me by. You see, this man knew he had a need. Like, he knew it, and he wasn't going to let the crowds get in the way. And he's yelling. And Jesus Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, they asked him, saying, What do you want me to do? And he said, Lord, I want to see that I might receive my sight. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Why am I reading this? Because Jesus is going into Jericho, and he meets a man who has a need, and he knows it. And he just cries out for God. And he's going to go into Jericho, and he's going to walk through one side of the town and out the other. Oh, but wait a minute. There's another guy in this town who has a need. One of the biggest problems with coming to Christ, one of the biggest problems with figuring out and getting what's going on with this Bible is realizing you have a need. The world is full of religious people and good-meaning people and nice neighbors that don't get it. They don't know they have a need. And they read verses and go to church and do all kinds of stuff, and they stand here like the disciples, and they don't get what's going on. They just don't see it. 
That's why the Bible describes people as blind. You can't come to God. You can't get it unless God opens your heart and allows you to see and realize what's going on. That's why we, we need God to work in our hearts. And there was a man in this town who knew he needed something. The rest of the town, who knows? Let's just read on. I'm going to read the passage and then read you a little story. Luke 19, verse 1, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. You might want to underline the word through or the equivalent in your English translation. He was going to pass through Jericho. Now behold, and when the writers write that, they do want you to look. You hear them telling the story. Not everybody had a printed Bible for, for years, right? So you hear someone reading the Bible. Now look, 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 look at the story. See it in your mind's eye. Uh, look, there was, a, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Ooh. Ooh, who was a chief tax collector. I mean, he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. He had other people's money lining his pockets. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. I can understand that. So, so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up, man. Get down, make haste, get down, come down for today. I must stay at your house. Underline that word must and go home and worry about it. Like, why, why, why must I stay at this man's house today? He's, he's about to leave town. I have to stay at your house tonight. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Are you kidding me? I just want to see he's going to come to my house. He received him joyfully. But that's not okay, verse 7, but when they saw, who's the they? When you read your Bible, like, get who the party is, who the, 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 the characters are. There's always, there's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, then there's the crowd, there's Jesus and the disciples. When you read most of the Gospels, there's the, the religious leaders and everybody else, the crowds, and Jesus and the disciples. And you sort of just watch them all. And what does the crowd say? When they saw it, they all complained. I mean, you need to think about something in our own society that everybody gets immediately offended at. It's pretty much anything. You just express a different opinion, and someone will ask for your resignation. Fire you. I'm amazed at how many college presidents, they're requesting people to just be fired left and right because somebody said something they don't like. I shouldn't get started. Um, they all complained, saying... He's gone to be the guest with a man who's a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, and I think he's gone to the house, they've eaten, and at some point he's standing up and he's saying, look, Lord, I, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. Think about it. We've been hearing about rich men, and we said that money is an indicator of the heart. The problem is not money. Why does the Bible talk so much about money? Because God wants money? No, God wants your heart. Where your treasure is, the Bible says, there will your heart be also. You want to know where your heart is? Look at what you're doing with your finances. So we see what this man does with his finances. 
and we know something's happened to his, to his heart. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now you're an American you're not a whatever, you know, you read, you're not from this culture. And we said at lunch, part of the challenge of interpreting the Bible is that you have to cover or cross a language gap and a cultural gap and a chronological gap. It's been 2,000 years. You have to cross those gaps. And there are things that you miss, you don't see in the passage. Here's one of them. He also was the son of Abraham. And you say, I guess so, that's great. What did you just miss? The fact that they did not think tax collectors were sons of Abraham. Mm-mm. What are you talking about? They're with the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. They're not coming to God's kingdom. They're not getting into heaven. Are you crazy? They are not sons of Abraham. That's, that's insane. With that in mind, Jesus says, oh, yeah, he's a son of Abraham, too. Well, what are you talking about? How is it that the worst of the worst could be considered sons of Abraham? I mean, people like that. I mean, fill it in. Fill, put in, in that category the worst of the worst today, like ISIS, right? Whoever you think is at the bottom of the, the, the ladder socially, you just fill them in. Jesus said he's a son of Abraham. How is this possible? Passage ends with verse number 10. You don't understand Jesus' program. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was religious church attending. No, that which was lost. You will not experience the salvation of Jesus Christ unless you realize you are lost. You don't get into God's presence by liking Jesus by studying the Bible and history. People who don't think they're lost don't start looking for a way home. People who don't think they're drowning don't cry out for a savior. People that don't think they're sick don't go to the doctor. The whole point is, is that the towns and the crowds are full of people that think they're just completely okay. And the Lord just walks through their town because they don't know they need him. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 9. We'll talk about a couple other things here. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. This is another version of the same statement. Jesus has come to seek and save. Think about that. Think about God looking for people, seeking them, seeking them out, and then saving them. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 9 says this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Ever heard of Matthew? He was used by God in the, to write a, a gospel. Matthew, sitting at the tax office. Oh, he's another one of these tax collectors. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he sit down and... And hang out with the worst of the worst. And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, Oh, you don't understand. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, you don't get it. 
go and learn what the Bible means. You're so into the Bible. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. All right, what does that mean? I don't want religion. I want hearts. I want change. The Lord has more delight in obedience than in burnt offerings and sacrifices, King Saul. You can do religion all day. You can go to the temple and offer your sacrifices, but God's looking for hearts. Religion doesn't count in exchange for a heart that's been born from above, that's been given life. You don't understand what this means. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you don't realize that you're a sinner, you can't repent. What is repentance? It's a change of mind. How do you know a mind has been changed? You see a change of actions. What, I'll give you an example of repentance. I used to teach middle school. There were always those kids. If there was something going down, if there was a fight, if there was a ruckus, if there was something, they were there. And you talk to them, and they always had an excuse, and it was good. You don't understand, Mr. Gentile. Mr. Gentile, why are you always messing with me? You always accuse me of stuff. I'm like, but you're always here. When something goes wrong, you're here. At some point, I just assume you're involved. It's not fair. And there are just excuses, excuses, excuses. But sometimes, especially if you get them away from the crowd of their friends and you talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, and I'm like, look, you did this. Here, here, here goes. This is repentance. When they say this, yeah, you're right. I did that. I was wrong. You got me. You see what that is? That's a change of mind. A change from denial to what you're saying about me is true. I agree with you. How do you know somebody's changed their mind? They, they change their actions. If you don't repent, if you don't have a change of mind about what God says about you, that you're a sinner, that you're lost, that you're in need of a savior, you're not going to trust Christ. You're not going to believe. You're going to collect information, but you're not going to cling to Christ because you know you need a savior. We do this with the kids at camp. We'll ask them, do you understand what it means to really believe? I look at them, I point to a chair, and I say, hey, do you believe that chair can hold me up? Of course they believe that chair can hold me up. But there's a difference between believing that chair can hold me up and actually going and sitting in it and relying on it to hold me up. You see, one is an idea. The other is a, a real acting and actually trusting and actual believing in. Let's go back and look at uh, Zacchaeus here. A couple other things. One of the things that's been in my mind throughout this evening, and I don't know if I might read a little bit of it or not, is a famous poem. Some of you have heard of it. Some of you who haven't. Some of you might have strong opinions about it. You've got to watch what everybody's got opinions about stuff. It's called The Hound of Heaven, and the name sounds very bothersome, and it's been used by different people in different ways, but it's a very rich poem that describes God's work and pursuit and following of a man through life. And I'm going to read you a story about that, and then we're going to look a little bit more at Zacchaeus, and I want to read you a couple lines from this poem. I came across a story of a woman named Andrea Wolf, and this comes from Bible.org, if you ever want to look it up. And she's on staff with Commission Office in Raleigh, North Carolina. She said, in the 1930s, Stalin ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers. In Stavropol, Russia, this order was carried out with vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated, and multitudes of believers were sent to the gulag prison camps where most died, unjustly condemned as enemies of the state. 
The commission once set a team to Stavropol. The city's history wasn't known at the time, but when the team was having difficulty getting Bibles shipped from Moscow to there, somebody mentioned the existence of a warehouse outside of town where these confiscated Bibles had been stored since Stalin's day. After the team had prayed extensively, one member finally mustered up the courage to go to the warehouse and ask the officials if the Bibles were still there. Sure enough, they were. Then the commissioners asked if the Bibles could be removed and distributed again to the people of Stavropol. And the answer was yes. And the next day, the commission team returned with a truck of several Russian people to help load the Bibles. One helper was a young man, a skeptical, hostile, agnostic collegian who had come only for the day's wages. As they were loading Bibles, one team member noticed that the young man had disappeared. Eventually, they found him in a corner of the warehouse, weeping. He had slipped away, hoping to take a Bible for himself. What he didn't know was that he was being pursued by the hound of heaven. It's just a, it's a phrase, the title of the poem that describes God's work through a lifetime in a person. What he found shook him to the core. The inside page of the Bible he picked up had the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. It had been her personal Bible. Out of the thousands of Bibles still left in that warehouse, he stole the very one belonging to his grandmother, a woman who throughout her life was persecuted for her faith. No wonder he was weeping. God had powerfully and yet tenderly made himself known to this young man. Such was his divinely appointed meeting with the sovereign Lord of the universe, the hound of heaven who had tracked him down to that very warehouse. Remember Jeremiah's words, can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do not I both fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And there's this man in this town named Nicodemus, the name Zacchaeus, excuse me. And the Lord has a meeting with him. Let me just tell you a few things about what might have gone on here. You, you, you probably know what tax farming was. The Romans would allow people to collect taxes from a region, and they would collect a certain amount, and they would turn it into the Romans. And, and in the process, they would often collect more than was necessary. And and people who did this were seen as sort of sellouts and traitors because the Romans were seen as oppressors. And so if you had someone whose name was Zacchaeus, a name that means righteousness, and he's working hand-in-hand hand with the Romans, taking taxes from people, that's just, it's like if the Nazis came to a country and, and then somebody sort of just started to cooperate with them to get money from the people. I mean, it's just, it's rough. He's this kind of guy. These were considered to be people who weren't, they were rejected by God. They weren't children of Abraham. He was a chief tax collector. He was over multiple tax collectors. They would tax imports that came from Perea and on the east going through to Jerusalem. Roads came through Jericho. And this man wants to see Jesus. And the interesting thing is, is that he's going to, it seems like the Lord Jesus is going to pass through the town, as I've already mentioned. And the crowd is not going to help Zacchaeus. He's lucky they didn't kill him. I mean, people died in crowds in those days. There was a group called the Sicarii. They had these long curved blades, and they would come into crowds and would knife people who were supporters of Rome and sort of bleed back into the crowds. Zacchaeus climbs a tree. He runs. We're told people of power maybe didn't do that. He gets up in the tree. And I'm, I'm told that 
the Talmud says that trees were 50 cubits outside of the city walls, maybe 75 feet. There was a requirement that trees be a certain distance from the town. And what that means is that possibly Jesus was already outside of the other side of town when he comes to the spot where Zacchaeus is. It seems clear, if I've got this right, that Jesus is not going to stay in the town. He's healed one man on one side. He hadn't stopped inside the town, and he's on his way out. You remember the passage where Jesus says he couldn't do many mighty works in that area because there was no faith? Does that have anything to do with why he just went through town? And he gets outside of town, and there's this man up in this tree, and he stops. He hasn't, he hasn't helped himself to anybody's hospitality. I'm told that a crowd would have probably gone out to receive him, a well-known person, you know, and it escorted him into town. I mean, you would have done that if you lived in a small town and somebody that was of national fame, so to speak, came to see you. Yeah. And he goes through town, and he stops on the other side under this tree and says, let's go back into town. I need to stay at your house tonight. I don't know what they talked about. I don't know what Jesus would talk about if he sat down with you. But when the Lord Jesus sat down with people and talked with them, he usually put his finger on whatever the issue was in their life. The fact that they had some excuse, some story, some problem, and they, they needed to know that they were sinners. Why do we need to know that we're sinners? Because God is a good God. You don't want a God who's in control of the universe that's okay with evil. You want a God who's utterly good, right? The most powerful being in the universe is okay with a little bit of darkness and a little bit of evil. You don't. God is so good that he can't overlook the sin in your life. So how can God be totally righteous and deal with all sin and yet be loving and have mercy on people? Do good judges tell criminals and murderers and rapists, I forgive you, you can go. Is that justice? Just go like this, it's not justice. And so when a holy, 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 holy God comes to your sin, does he say, I give you a free pass, I'll let you go? That's not justice. So what does God do? How can God be both loving and just? He can step in and take your penalty for you. Christ was punished on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Peter writes, he took our sin in his own body. It's that personal, my sin, on his own body on the tree. You're not just thrown in with a crowd. Jesus died for the crowd, and you're in there somewhere. My sin. Paul writes, who loved me and gave himself for me. Not just some nebulous group of people. And so Zacchaeus admitted what he did. And was saved. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. He changed. There are a lot of people who get religious information, but not changed hearts. The Bible talks about God taking the heart of stone out in Ezekiel and giving us a heart of flesh. The New Covenant says, I will write my law on their hearts no longer will they tell their neighbors, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the greatest of them to the least of them. Are you a person here this evening that has collected religious information, knows about Jesus, or have you come to the place in your life where you realize that you're lost? 
and you need a savior to save you from God's good and right and holy wrath against sin. And you said, ah, I want to be saved. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want this. I want real life. I don't want to play around. I don't want to, I don't want to miss, miss out on life, knowing the, the God who created me is made to live eternally with him. Whosoever does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God is, is condemned already, Scripture says, because he has not believed. Whosoever believes is not condemned. So Zacchaeus goes home and is forgiven and his life is changed and Jesus leaves town. I just want you to underline the verse. I think I'm out of time here. Um, in Luke chapter 19, verse number 10. It's the theme verse almost of Mark's gospel. Luke 19, verse 10. It says this, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you know you're lost? This man did. And he went to look and Jesus saved him. I just want to ask tonight if you're, if you're here, you might have grown up in this local church. It's, we're going to close here. I'm not going to read the poem. You can look it up. The Hound of Heaven. It's a beautiful poem. It's a story of a man who lived. Um, he was one of the greatest poets, poets, and he was given opium in medical treatment. He became addicted to it. Lived his life on the streets for years and was saved when people found his poetry and got it published. He's one of the greatest poets of English history. And uh, he wrote this poem about his life. You go look it up. And um, God found him. You might be in this room, gone to meetings, come to this meeting, sang the songs, been to Sunday school, done all kinds of things, but never, never recognized that you were lost. And Christ comes through and he meets you and he says, I want to come to your house today, not tomorrow, today. I'm coming through town and then I'm going out. Can I come to your house? What do you say? You say, I don't need you. I already know what it's like for you to stay at my house. You can keep on going. <laughs> you say, Lord, I, come on in. I know I'm lost, but I'll sit down with you. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Let's just pray. Father, we ask you this evening that you would receive our thanks for the fact that you loved us and you sent your son to come find us. Lord, thank you for the people that preach the gospel to my great-grandparents in the Northeast and the people you've sent into our towns and lives to come point our eyes to the Savior. Lord, help us not to be like the rich young ruler thinking there's something better in life than your offer, or the, the rich fool who doesn't even realize it. Lord, help us to be like Zacchaeus if we haven't been, and to pursue our curiosity about Christ. And to believe in his offer for salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.